0: trust yourself and don't ever think you're like stuck i thought academia was the only way there's like a whole world out there for us so don't feel like you're stuck like i feel now if i don't like academia i can walk away and be completely fine Mm. but past megan was like oh my gosh what will i do if i don't get a tenure track job i'll be homeless in the street yeah
1: Welcome to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe that your life and career after grad school should rock. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I'm talking with my good friend, Dr. Megan Hicks. Megan is a tenure track professor of social work at Wayne State University, and she studies health disparities among black communities. She's a PI on several large grants related to her research there. In addition to her academic work, Megan also runs her data analytics business called Hicks Data Consulting, where she works with a variety of organizations and research professionals on their data-related needs. This episode will be particularly interesting for folks who want to have an academic career after grad school, particularly in the research and grant-intensive side of academia. Additionally, in this episode, Megan shares a lot of experience and wisdom from her time getting her business up and running, and I think that part of the conversation will be valuable to folks who are interested in using their grad school skills and expertise to start a small business or side hustle. Lastly, I asked Megan some bonus questions that you can hear at the very end of the episode. So if you enjoy this episode, please listen to the very end to hear those. Anyway, I'm excited to be able to share this episode with you today. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today, Megan Hicks, Dr. Megan Hicks. Um, Megan is the CEO and founder of Hicks Data Consulting, a uh, data firm that works with organizations and research professionals on their data needs. She is also a tenure track professor at Wayne State University in the School of Social Work. And she is an assistant professor and focuses on Health equity among black communities and risk taking among youth and young adults. And uh, disclosure, I did go to grad school with Megan, (laughs) known her for a couple years. So it is good to talk with you, Megan. How are you doing? It's
0: about about 10 years.
1: It was forever. Or
0: like nine. Yeah. so,
1: (laughs) So many years. And at this point, it's like someone just reminded me, I think it was Allie, that. As of next year, it will be a decade since we started our PhD. And did you start in? 2016?
0: I started. I started in twenty twelve, so it's been a, it's okay. been a decade. Yeah, it's crazy.
1: That is crazy. So, <laughs> the first question uh, related to grad school: Why did you go to grad school? What what made you interested in grad school?
0: Um, I graduated undergrad, and I was super interested in research. In undergrad. So I'm the nerd in undergrad learning SPSS and all of that. I did like research jobs. And so when I graduated, I was looking for research jobs. And they're like, Psych, you need all these degrees at that time. I don't think that is like that anymore. But at the time when I was looking, or at least the jobs I was looking at, it was like, you need a master's, you need a PhD. And so I'm like, I guess I'm going. To get my master's, (laughs) and that's how it happened. I applied to one school, UGA. UGA. And that's where I went.
1: (laughs) Yep. And and you did the, uh, I don't know what it's called, but like the straight through track of doing your master's and PhD kind of bundled together. Is that right? Yeah.
0: And I slid into that the same way. So same kind of story. I got my master's, was super passionate about research, went job searching, like, during the first year, end of the first year of mattress masters and everything I wanted, they're like, you got to have your PhD. And UGA had the post back program and all you did is sign a paper and keep going. So I went straight through.
1: Yeah, straight through. What did, what did you love or take away about uh, your grad school experience at UGA?
0: Definitely the community and I don't know if our experience was unique. Like when I talk about like the the women friendships that I created in grad school, it almost seems kind of unique, but I hope other people are experiencing it. But I had very deep connections with people in grad school because I feel like we were all going through it together. It's like a different level of connection that you have yeah with people. Like even if I haven't seen you in a while, I feel like we're just very comfortable because we've been through that together.
1: Yeah. Yep. Trauma
0: bonding maybe, but
1: yep. Yeah. Trauma bonding, <laughs> stats classes, <laughs> negotiating drama between professors.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Not to not to get too dicey. Um Yeah. When when did you start honing in on a research area?
0: I switched areas like after my masters, so I started and I was really interested in family relationships because um, my background has always been in like human development or it wasn't sociology but I was I wanted to change to human development undergrad because I was just super interested in family relationships and they were like just graduate with sociology <laughs> <laughs> like it's not gonna change anything really and it didn't um, and but then I realized I was more interested at the end of my masters on how like relationships impact individual health and so then I changed to health outcomes going into my phd and kind of it stuck at that point at the beginning first or second year of phd is when i really honed in on health mm-hmm. yeah outcomes for people for youth. and
1: and you i feel like it's unique that you um went into a PhD knowing you wanted to do research. Um, what what opportunities or what cool experiences did you have doing research during your PhD that you think other people might not have gotten?
0: Um, I worked for the... Are we allowed to name drop to people? Or should I just say I worked for a place? Um, you can do
1: either way. And if you name drop and regret it, I can edit yeah. it out. It doesn't
0: matter. Well, I'll name drop because I think it's an amazing place. Um, I worked for the Center for Family... Research. CFR. Yeah. CFR, Center for Family Research. They do a lot of programs in the community for Black families, Black youth, Black young adults. And I was very appreciative that I had an advisor that um, let me do whatever I wanted because I was just very interested in from start to finish, data collection, evaluation, dissemination, like all of it. And so... I was able to really dive in and go out into the field, collect data, clean that data, code it, an- analyze it, present it, you know, from start to, to end.
1: Mm-hmm. Are there any, uh, like, specific research projects that you remember fondly or were your favorite or had cool findings?
0: I had an interesting experience that I thought was fun, and then I told other people, and they were like, that's kind of alarming. So I don't know if it's a positive or a negative story, but so I worked with this specific project focused on African-American men and we went and did, did, it's hard to engage black men in research. And so we decided to drive to, and we're collecting data in rural areas. So we decided to drive to the rural areas and set up in this hotel and just have them come to us. Like if they were free, anytime during the day, I sat in a room and had the men come to us and we would collect data on the survey and we collected saliva. And I guess maybe because I was talking to people that don't necessarily understand the research strategy or, or research data collection, but they were like, you went to a hotel and waited for men to come and meet you and yeah. <laughs> then left. I'm like, yeah, this kind of sounds like I was selling myself, but I wasn't.
1: Sounds sketchy, but that sounds like a super (laughs) effective way to get a hard to reach uh, population.
0: And it was actually like fun getting to meet them, you know, and we had food. And so it was like super low pressure and just like, yeah, it was just something different, you know, to do and collect data and go see a community that we're working in. So,
1: yeah. Um, and what I'm what trying to say. So I, I was never a part of. Again, disclosure for context. I was never a part of CFR. I did work on some projects that kind of like orbited uh, or were affiliated with CFR. Um, and I, it always struck me as interesting that it was it focused on rural uh, people of color, specifically like black families, black young men. Um, what other, I guess, obstacles did you all see in reaching a rural population as opposed to like a more urban population where I think most of the research Mm -hmm. focuses?
0: I think internet was a big one. So we had to like, not everyone had internet at home. So we had to figure out a way for them to fill out the survey without internet or on their phone or going to meet them at mcdonald's or the library you know public places with internet so internet was definitely one um finding the sample too so they had a very specific way in collecting the data that wasn't regular snowball sampling it was a different type of sampling but you just you know the the population was very different and kind of hard to find so Um, they had also like community liaisons, I believe there to also help, like reaching out to the community to, in the schools to, um, run the programs and get people, get families involved. Yeah.
1: Very cool. And what did you end up doing your dissertation on?
0: Um, um, You know, we have to recite the title so many times. I think it was um, Risk and Protective Factors Influencing Sexual Risk Behavior Among Black Young Men.
1: Yeah.
0: So I focused on a big portion of my work focused on protective factors to have a a more positive outlook on risk and how being involved with, um, you know, positive people, having positive friends, mentors, positive things in your life can protect against you know, those risk behaviors.
1: Very cool. And did you, I assume you ended up publishing some part or all of your dissertation. Do you remember mm-hmm. where it, where it ended up finding a publication home?
0: I can probably look it up or ah. like, I don't know. I, th- I don't know.
1: I know you've published in a lot of places.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think it, yeah. I don't know if it was one publication, so it might've been a one or two. I wrote a traditional dissertation. So it was one analysis, but it was a giant analysis. So I, I may have broken it up or I, I know I published one for sure, but I don't remember where. That's
1: exactly. interesting. I remember your mentor, um, telling, telling, uh, it was maybe in a class. He was just kind of like <laughs> riffing how he would often do. And, uh, he was talking about, um, I don't know, how he, how there was only one analysis for the long form dissertation. And so if it required reanalyzing, you had to reanalyze one analysis. Mm -hmm. And he was going on about, you know, how it was actually more practical than doing the Mm -hmm. three embedded.
0: Yeah. Funny guy. He was. But that doesn't mean that I only did one. So people often think. Oh, you did traditional, you only had to write one. He was also about, like, producing results. So, it's like, you walk, I I publish at the same time as writing my dissertation. Yeah. Like, you know, like, in parallel. You don't have to submit, like, three for your dissertation. I think he would rather submit one and then have two published already. So, there, there were still, like, more. Absolutely. <laughs> but, yeah. Which I think is smart, but...
1: And I've pulled up your CV. We've got Archives of Sexual Behavior, Journal of Ethnicity and Substance Use, American Journal of Men's Health, Journal of Sex Research, Archives of Sexual Behavior. Is there any journal that you are particularly in love with or liked publishing in?
0: Not yet. I don't know. I haven't, you know, it's never like a, I haven't had a pleasant experience each time, so I don't know. Yeah. I don't think that is a... Yeah, I don't think that's ever, like, an exciting... (laughs) I mean, your first one is definitely exciting, and it's exciting when it's published. I don't think the process is exciting, so...
1: For sure. And so you, it looks like, graduated in 2017 um, and then went on to the post to Faculty Transition Fellowship at Wayne State University. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that fellowship and, and what it's like?
0: Yeah, so it was a postdoc. Um, I have a lot of critiques of it, um, so I could share that as well, because they really sold us a dream. So what the program was supposed to do was it was a 3 year postdoc and we would receive this NIH training and and during the first year and then we would have to write a grant in the second and third year um and then it would set us up to transition into full-time faculty and they kind of made it sound like we would just transition and be welcomed um but the reality was yes we did the NIH training but it was kind of a mess and then there wasn't any real guidance afterwards and then we just had to apply like everybody there wasn't any like special treatment or anything to help us transition into faculty i had to do everything on my own so that's my big critique of these programs that are geared towards students of color postdocs of color is that they don't always deliver um and i've been working with people to help improve those experiences so it doesn't happen to other people but um i did transition but i don't want it to go you know all the credit to go to that program cuz yeah. i did everything for myself
1: for sure <laughs> and it looks like you were pretty active in the in the the grant space at that time
0: mm mm-hmm. mhm um Which I give credit, I give that credit to our training at UGA, you know, like our mentors and the environment we were around was federal grant heavy. Um, So I think, and my undergrad experience, I've been on an R1 grant ever since freshman year of college. So it was just like the environment I was in was set up for that.
1: Mm -hmm. And how, so you transitioned to transitioned. You got a tenure track (laughs) job uh, after that fellowship in... um,
0: Oh, can I make a comment about that? Because it was three-year. It's a three-year postdoc. I don't suggest three years, like after the second year, I think one year is too short. Three years was too long. And so I think I was ready in the second year. You know, I was, I took up teaching to make extra money. So I was teaching two classes and doing research. And I was basically doing service to, I was like a faculty member at the end of my second year. Mm-hmm. So on the third year, I was just ready.
1: <laughs> and so That's interesting because what what do you think students who want to go on to have a research career in academia should be looking for in a postdoc or a postdoc fellowship?
0: Yeah, Uh, definitely like places with data already. Mm -hmm. So my postdoc, I had mentors who had a plethora. I was searching for that data already. So you can get publications and analyze data experience on your own. Cause you need that to, you know, as a faculty member and then teaching experiences. Um, I didn't, you know, at UGA, we didn't have a lot of, I didn't have a lot of teaching. And so um, I was, I sought it out to be hired as a part-time faculty member to also teach. So I I was doing a postdoc and I was part-time faculty. So I was able to teach and get extra money because we know those postdoc salaries are not enough.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anything you you would have told yourself back then before you started the postdoc? Mm. Maybe on how the postdoc is different than being a PhD student.
0: It's a weird place. Yeah. So you, because PhD students want, you're like in this weird in between where you don't want to socialize with PhD students and then you don't know how to socialize with faculty. I chose the faculty side because that's where I know I wanted to be, but it was a weird balancing act because we're the same age Yeah. (laughs) and I didn't have friends. So the PhD students probably do stuff and invite me. And I'm like, I don't know. Um, so it was this weird in between space. So yep. maybe expect that to be in the weird in between. Also, I was um the first postdoc my department ever had. So they didn't know what to do with me. Oh, and so you kind of have to find your way. I had to sit down and ask myself, like, what do I want out of this postdoc to get me to where I need to go? And I had great mentors and be like, All right, well let's get you there. So it's very important to have a supportive mentor in the postdoc process that will support you.
1: That's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about the grants? Uh, I'm looking at your CV. I don't know if it's fully up to date, but it's grants under submission. You got two K01s as a PI and then an R21 as a co-PI. Um, are those all three still under submission?
0: Um, that's a little old. Okay. So those weren't funded. Um, the K01... What's the question about it? Sorry.
1: <laughs> um you're you're on a grant right now, right? hmm What grant are you on right now?
0: Um, I'm on a couple of grants evaluate well one I am a PI sorry, there's like three or four. Um the first one I'm a PI, it's very small to do an evaluation with a nonprofit, evaluating their interventions with young black boys. Mm-hmm. Um and then the other few kind of grew legs into its own or like a train. So it started as an evaluation of the juvenile justice system in Wayne County. um, And we initiated a risk and needs assessment into the juvenile justice process. (laughs) And then the two other ones, I'm, I'm PI in all of them. So the next two grants are associated with that, where we're adding a dispositional matrix into the the process of juvenile justice as well. And then we're evaluating that. Very so. cool.
1: So uh, grants are like, you know, uh, my perception of, of getting specifically federal grants, but grants in general, is this huge black box to a lot of students. And unless you have a mentor who's active in getting grants, you really mm-hmm. don't know like, what's going on in that world or how to get there. So yeah. how did you get so involved in the, in the grant world?
0: um i think uga set us up for that like being a part of huge grants working on huge grants you understand the importance of funding your own research and also like giving people jobs i don't you know like that's like a weird aspect i don't think people understand of like the work you do around like your grants really fund people's jobs uh that's a side story um but being in that world, there's just an importance of if you want to make a difference, you sh- usually have to have money in a grant <laughs> yeah. to do that. And so they trained us that way. So entering into my faculty role at a research one, it is that way. That's the culture. Yeah. Like if you want to do your own research, you have to have a grant to do that or to buy your time yeah. away from the university.
1: And so how did you get integrated into to grant life at Wayne State?
0: Um, my postdoc, it was a requirement, and so that's where I wrote the KO1. My first KO1 was a product of my postdoc because it was a requirement. Um, and then after the KO1, the feedback I received on my KO1 was like, we believe your research project would prosper, but there wasn't enough training in the in the grant. And I was like, you know what? I feel like I don't need more training in this certain aspect. And so I'm just going to move forward and resubmit it without it being a KO1. So then I resubmitted it without the training piece into a different mechanism. Um, my maintenance, The maintenance is here. Can we just yeah. pretend pause? Yeah. Okay. All right. We're back. <laughs> Sorry. It's all good. Do you want me to continue talking, like yep. how Let's to get into the grant world? Um, yeah. So yeah, my postdoc required us to write a grant and then I resubmitted it as a different grant mechanism. And then by that time, um, faculty, you know, as soon as you start your your tenure track appointment, it, it's really important to gain, you know, collaborations with people. And I kind of um, had this reputation of like, ooh, she writes grants, ooh, she submitted to NIH. And so people are like, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Do you want to do this? And so um, it just snowballed from there. And then there's always these little tiny calls that once you are good at writing grants, they're super, e- I don't want to say super easy, but easier. And so The first grant I got funded right away, it was a foundation grant, and it was small, and I just felt like it was easy to write, and I wrote it and got funded for that. And then the second, the evaluation grants came from um, the community connections I had, and um, the dean of my department actually, you know, she knew my reputation and was like, I think you really need to do this, and that was that.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so how do you feel? Uh, I love that you brought up the foundation. How do you feel about, um, like NIH funding versus going to like private foundations? Do you have feelings about that?
0: Um, I think it's your comfort level and time management. And so starting out, it's easier i think to get the smaller grants to build to the new one so that was a major feedback too of like the r21 that i wrote um they wanted data so i i believe you should you know go after smaller things get data if you don't have data publish analyze show results and then build that into the bigger nih proposals
1: yeah that makes sense i uh when I, when I was a research scientist at that, that research and intervention center, it was fully funded mainly by like private foundations. And that blew my mind because I had always kind of poo-pooed on the idea of going private mm-hmm. with funding. Um, but I saw how successful they were at it. Yeah, uh, It's like once you do well in that space and you can maintain those connections, you can have a long you know, track Mm -hmm. record with, with funders and they'll just keep, if they like your product, they'll just keep giving you money. Yeah. Um,
0: That's what happened with the juvenile justice project. That's why I said it grew legs because it funded the first time and they've funded it two times over. And so it's funded until 2025 and it started in 2020.
1: Yeah. So that's awesome. So for folks who, uh, want to get into the grant space and maybe like don't know how or they don't have like a connection at the moment what like i don't know two three five things do you recommend they they start doing yeah. today to prepare them
0: well nih has a lot of i don't know if it money's involved or maybe because i'm at a university they always come and give presentations about grant writing or, um, you know, full and associate professors who are in that NIH space, they're always presenting about how to write a grant, how to, how you know, specifics. Like there is a professor in nursing um, who is doing like a whole series right now, like each session, like how, do, how to write specific aims, how to write your research strategy, how to do letter of intent, like it's very specific. And so they're just free things to attend for that. Um, and you, they love to talk about it. So I I met that person already because he shared a call and was like, does anybody, you know, want to be on this call? And they do like university wide calls too, if they're interdisciplinary grants. And then everyone's always just been welcoming and talking to talk about the process, But even if you don't feel comfortable, I've noticed there were people on those large calls that were like, just wanted to get the experience too. So don't feel like if you're at a university right now and you see like a call for like a big grant, don't feel like intimidated. Just be like, can I hop on there? I have some experience in this. And they're like, they get excited about having, you know, young people on it.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Um. So I, I feel like that kind of brings us to today. So you are tenure-track assistant professor at Wayne State University. You've got grants going on. You've got publications going on. You've got teaching going on. What is the uh, tenure-track faculty life like?
0: Well, okay i can only speak to well i guess it's kind of relevant i started my very first semester tenure track in the pandemic like i literally got in the classroom for like like a month or so like or january so i didn't teach the first semester so fall and then winter we shut down in what february march And so I only got a little bit of that part. So it's been interesting being a faculty member in the pandemic, but it's been overwhelming um, because of that and balancing the balancing act of service, teaching and research um, is very time consuming. So it's very like you have to be really on your time management if you want to have a life. Yeah. Also I started in the midst of like civil unrest with you know George Floyd and um everybody you know just there was just so much protests and mo- mo- the majority of the protesting was around our campus and around my apartment and really? so okay and participating in those it was just a lot and the university wanted to respond, and so I was a part of those efforts, and so that was like the service component. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it's just a big, giant balancing act.
1: Yeah. What a unique time to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so for folks who, who are thinking about university life, what what do you recommend it to me, it seems like you have a, a great balance of things you know we were able to meet and have this call you know I know you you have good family relationships and some friends that you maintain. Mm-hmm. you're also you know kicking ass at <laughs> at all the things having to do with being a professor so what what do you think helps you like maintain that balance and and survive in in what I see as like a super tough uh you know place to be in,
0: yeah. Definitely having those supports and like really finding people that are really great people, you know. Like the first grant that I got, I think I'm really good at like finding good people, you know. Like I'm an empath and I can read people really well. And so I made my first work bestie and we submitted that foundation grant. And so we just have like a really good relationship and we push each other to get grants and, um, And then around teaching too. So like there I get, there's other people that teach the same sections as me. And so I always talk with them and we like brainstorm the classes together. So it's never like doing anything completely on my own. I think that is a big thing in in this profession is that it's very isolating and you could probably do everything on your own. I just really choose not to because I know that I can't do that like I would be yeah. miserable.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And so uh we haven't even brought it up yet, but in the midst of all of this professional uh development and career you've got going on, you also, excuse me. <laughs> you also have a business that you run, Hicks <laughs> Data Consulting. Yeah. So when did when did you start up Hicks Data Consulting?
0: Um well, I started doing the work that I did that informed my business like after graduation. So when I graduated in 2017, I didn't have a job lined up because that's how academic jobs work. And I was jobless for like six months and and then I got the job, the postdoc at Wayne State. And so I didn't have money for six months. And so I got on Upwork and was like freelancing doing um, a lot of different research. So that's when I found out that the research skills that I've gained can translate into market research, like any type of research actually translated it the most into market research, because I think having a degree in human development really makes us good at like predicting human behavior and like setting up, you know, that type of market research. And then, in 2019, so I was just freelancing, and things were growing and growing, and then in 2019, I was still a postdoc, needed more money, and I was doing really good at the market research, and um, you know, analyzing data on Upwork for dissertations and faculty members, and so I'm like, I think this could be a business, and I'm tired of paying Upwork. Upwork takes a large percentage <laughs> of your money. And so I'm like, I'll just start my own business. And then it boomed after that.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. And what kind of clients did you work with at the beginning? And what kind of clients do you work with today?
0: Yeah. So at the beginning, it was a lot of, um, Partnering with universities um, and students to do dissertations or any research projects that they have. Like a lot of places had like on staff statisticians, but those were like, those people were really busy. Um, And so word of mouth spread. Cause I had one client reach out and she was like, yes, we have an on staff statistician, but they're so busy and I have deadlines. And so my advisor said like, I could work with you. Is that okay? And I said, yes. And then she gave my name to 17 members of her cohort. Wow. <laughs> and I analyzed everyone's data after that. Um, Cause it was really simple stuff. T-tests, pre-post things correlations um and so that was mainly like what I was doing at the beginning students and then also market research so there are companies on Upwork that big companies like eBay and Airbnb and you know different companies um one big one that I'm not allowed to talk about but it's a big one um that can find you on Upwork and um and so I kept those relationships too, when I started my business and still did like the market research side as well. So I was doing mainly market research and then students at the beginning. That's awesome. and, and then I moved away from students because I now that I've moved into my faculty position in 2020, time is gold, you know? And so I'm like, I need to be able to work less and still maintain you know, and income, and so I realized working with nonprofits and, and businesses, I can raise my rate and work less. And so, I shifted to nonprofits and different businesses, still doing market research, but also doing a lot of um, program evaluation and and any data need from start to end. I always say that: data collection, evaluation, implementation. Work with nonprofits, and so that's why I focus on now.
1: That's awesome, and I, I feel like you're unique in that um, you've you've got both the the methods, like you've done and been a part of projects that started at data collection, or even started at like grant proposal stage. Mm-hmm. Did data collection, did all the cleaning, and did the statistical analysis. And I feel like typically people have either one or the other
0: yeah. um,
1: skill set. Do you have a current uh, like client or past client organization um, that was like a really great experience or a really cool project that you remember?
0: Yeah, well, I have three big ones now that are that I put my energy into Um, and also just a caveat. And so if your work is very close to the work you do as a faculty member and if you ever need to represent yourself like in the faculty member role with these companies, I, I don't some universities require you to report your hours. Wayne State, it's like kind of a lot. It's like 10 hours a week that you can consult in your roles. And I don't do that much with these places, but you have to report it to the university as well. So I can still maintain my business and also do consulting. So that's how I do that. Um, But if it's not related to Wayne State and it's outside of work hours, you don't have to report it. Um, So that's just a side note. Um, But my favorite Um, is an organization in Detroit called Detroit uh, Phoenix Center. They work with youth in the community and they provide like so many different resources. I also volunteer on their um, scholarship committee. I chair the scholarship committee that they have and they provide scholarships to students to go to college. Um, But I work with them on a lot of different projects. So data collection, evaluation, building a curriculum. So they have a new fellowship program and I'm helping them build up this curriculum because that's like my content, you know, professor type of expertise is youth programming. And so I'm helping them do a lot of different things. That's awesome. I'm just like on a constant, you know, retainer basically with them.
1: Hey, having those relationships for a long period of time, I feel like is uh, is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, do uh, Do you foresee doing any work with them in the future, um, like in like enhanced ways or like incorporating them into grants or something or yeah. is it different than that? Yeah.
0: We always talk about it because, you know, since our content areas are very similar, there's always calls. We tried to write a grant before, but it was just too busy. And there's always a grant. That's another thing. If you're pushing yourself and you can't submit it, and I just, I refuse to break myself down, there will be another call. (laughs) There's always calls for grants that exist. So even if you have, it's even better if you have one ready to go. So, yeah. we're just waiting for the right time. Yeah. But they're completely open.
1: That's awesome. So, I feel like now that we have a great picture of like where your career is and your your data consulting thing, how many hours a week do you spend working? Can we get into like the pragmatics of of how it all happens?
0: Um, yeah. I don't even know. I don't track it. You know, there's a joke that that faculty member, you know, it's like I didn't want to work a nine to five. So I chose academia to work 24 seven. I feel like that's kind of true. But I. I've never tracked it because my job is so flexible. Like, I feel like you choose that flexibility for your life. Like yesterday, I worked from like 12 to 8 or 12 to 9 p.m. because I had stuff to do in the morning. And then sometimes I work on Sundays um, just because grad school programmed me that way. You yeah. know, like we always worked on Sundays, and I'm trying to get out of that. Um, but probably, I definitely work, I try to work close to 40 for academia, but it, it never will reach that. I would probably say, I don't know, yeah, over 40.
1: <laughs> yeah, And then how much do you think you work on the consulting gig each week?
0: At the very beginning, it was a lot. Like I was dedicating probably 20 hours a week, like, like the whole like work nine to five, work five to nine on your own thing. So I, I, I adopted that method to get my business up and running. Um, but now I would say probably like eight hours or seven hours a week um, with the consulting.
1: Yeah. And then what? Going back to the, the professor life, what, what proportion do you spend on teaching versus research?
0: Um, there's percentages. I need to look them up. I think it's like, you know, like 40, 30, 20 or whatever, mm. where I think, I don't know what a 2-2 two, two means, what what that relates into as percentages. But my appointment is a 2-2 where I teach two classes per semester. But since I have grant money, I bought out and I teach one class per year. Um,
1: one class per year?
0: One class per year.
1: That's awesome.
0: I've been reassured that for for my university, that is enough to get tenure. Um, we'll see. Yeah. People have said that is enough. And it's very broad and vague in the in the paperwork that we have. So if you're a tenure track, you know, professor, you have all this paperwork you have to submit every year and handbooks and things. And in the handbook it just says to have a teaching record. And so when I ask them how much is enough, they're like, Just enough. Yeah. Okay.
1: That's awesome. <laughs> I I uh, I don't know about you. I was never a huge fan of teaching.
0: I don't yeah. Okay. I don't like teaching. Yeah.
1: The research is is the coolest part in my, opinion. but I'm
0: really good at it, so I think the all the, the difference too is that my teaching scores are really high um, but I don't like teaching
1: yeah <laughs> do you do you have grad students that you mentor?
0: I have my first one this year.
1: Oh, very cool.
0: It's weird to be on this side. yeah um so, so I have my first one this year and going into my third year. So it's my first like official major professor role. Mm-hmm. I've informally like helped students in the previous years, but they like guarded my time with that because I was chairing a committee I wasn't supposed to chair. Um, so that's why I didn't mentor students.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. So uh, I- I'm just curious, do you know what year you plan to go up for tenure on?
0: I think it's 2025 Okay. because I started in 2020. So after you go up in the fifth year, I think. Yeah. So.
1: That's awesome. Do they have like defined um, like metrics that you have to hit for publications or anything?
0: See, this is what I was talking about. It's defined, but it's not defined. So there's not like numbers. Yeah. So, like, publications, I think they say three per year. That might be... I think they said, like, 15 total or something for 10 years. So, it averages out to three a year. Um, But everything else is defined but not defined. Yeah. And I've heard that's an issue at different universities. Um, So, like I said, you have to have enough teaching. You have to have enough service. And... 15 publications. Yeah.
1: Do you feel like the grants are going to, I don't know, be kind of like heavily weighing on the scales? Because I feel like at the assistant level, it's not necessarily expected as Mm -hmm. much as it is at the associate or full.
0: Yeah. So they told me that like my boss, like, you know, whoever my boss is, the position, um, they told me that. Grants are to be viewed as icing on a cake. Mm. And so, and at this stage, they don't necessarily count funded grants either. They just want to make sure you're submitting grants too. So, like, I feel like at assistant level, at least at my university, it's the same weight. A submission is the same weight as funded.
1: Interesting. Well, I feel like you're going to have a lot of icing on that cake when that day comes.
0: I know. Um, well, my they were kind of looking at it negatively too, because I didn't have as many pubs. So now I like beefed up the pubs to make sure I'm good. Um, but I'm like, my postdoc was about grants; it wasn't about writing. So they they were like, "That's true," and they got over it.
1: Man, I feel like I would if I was an administrator, I would, and maybe this is a bad thing, but I would pr- value grants like right. way above publications, because you need publications to get grants. It's not like the other way around.
0: And since we've been in a pandemic, that's what they're looking for. So this is why it's frustrating to be a faculty member of the pandemic because the universities want money and need money. And so they're like, where's the money? And I'm like, well, do you want me to write papers or do you want me to get money? Because, like, you yeah. choose.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well that that is awesome. Um, <laughs> I, I What do you think uh, back in, like, master's program, Megan – had in in mind for their future career like is this where you thought you'd end up
0: no masters megan just wanted to like work on a research team Mm. and then i guess having the mentor that i had like seeing the power that he had to make a difference and create things and get funding for his own research interests you know that motivated me and be like, oh, I could create my own programs. I could help, you know, I could have power to give agencies to, to, or to have agency to give to others, you know, like that just really empowers me to be able to, you know, design my own pro- program or help other like nonprofits, like beef up what they're doing. Um, I love that.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Is there anything you would have told, uh, you know, grad student Megan to help her like prepare or navigate to this point?
0: Um, trust yourself and don't ever think you're like stuck. Like a real, a realization I think for me that happened last year was that I thought academia was the only way. Mm. And the fact that There's so many other avenues. And, like, even when you're in your PhD program, I feel like people get shunned if they don't want to be in academia. But there's, like, a whole world out there for us. So don't feel like you're stuck. Like, I feel now, if I don't like academia, I can walk away and be completely fine. Mm -hmm. But past Megan was like, oh, my gosh, what will I do if I don't get a tenure-track job? I'll be homeless in the street. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I... Uh, I, um, I love the fact that you have the Hicks data consulting. And I remember when you started like the branding and you got like the new website and everything. Um, what, so what, I'm sure there are tons of grad students who want to start some kind of business Mm -hmm. or side hustle based on what they've learned in their PhD program. Yeah. What, what do you think they can do or what should they know about doing that that could prepare them to actually like make it into something like you have?
0: Um, I would just make sure to set aside time to learn. Like I went into full, you know, we're researchers. I went into full research mode on how to create a business, how to create a business plan. What's my mission? What's my purpose? Just having a clear message and a clear plan for what you want to do before launching. Um, officially, I think, you know, I wanted to prepare myself fully, like researching everything before I was like, boom, you know, Higgs Data Consulting. Because I've yeah. met some people that kind of like started their business and it didn't, they didn't think through that whole process first. And so they're like jumbling um, yeah, on their purpose and what they want to do.
1: Is, is there anything you would have done differently based on what you know now?
0: Um, I branded myself when I first started, cause I had so many student clients, I like branded myself for students and then I had to rebrand kind of, um, but I don't know if that was just like an evolution or I wish I would have did it different. I don't know. Cause it kind of was an evolution, but I, I don't know. I wish I started what I'm doing now earlier.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. So we're nearing the end, and I'm I'm trying to draw out any any wisdom or any takeaways that you've got. So you're you're living, you know, the the tenure track life, the high speed, high pressure <laughs> thing that we uh, many of us think about when we're grad students. Is there anything that you would want current grad students to know about the tenure track life, particularly the research intensive part? to just give them like insight into what it's like or tips on how to get there or anything like that.
0: I think just talk to people about it. I, th- I was so scared and I thought the information would just be on the internet for some reason and it's not. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like just the little things like budgeting or the submission process or, you know, definitely submission process through a university because someone else does that and, um, There's just other stuff that you have to do that I had no idea that I had to do. And so just talk to everyone you can, like where you are about the research process, the grant submission process, everything. I don't know, you know, everything. I don't know, like how to say that better. (laughs) But you basically learn by other people doing it because no one is teaching us everything. So, it's literally like asking another faculty member, like, did you learn how to do this? And they're like, I taught myself, but I can help you.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Relationships and networking are so, it seems so integral to getting ahead.
0: It is. It's very vital.
1: Yeah. So, this is something that we talked a little bit before we started recording, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on it. So, as, as a woman of color who's kind of climbed in this research world to the position of power you have now. You're getting grants. You have this side business. Um, what uh, What do you see looking back now that you think other people of color or women of color should know about, you know, gaining power and um, making a career in what's probably like a white-dominated or a yeah. white-male-dominated field?
0: Yeah. Um, I think just really listening to yourself and not having, you know, second guessing yourself and your abilities. Like, I think we kind of dim our light in that way of not being sure of ourselves in certain environments or sure how to say things correctly or who to contact and things like that. But just like, really try to reassure yourself that you're supposed to be here. You deserve to be here. You like, you know yourself best you know your 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 expert area the best for you you know and so cuz i had an experience where some a white man told me like don't do that and i was not going to and i did and it turned out amazing because i listened to myself and i always think like if i listened to him it wouldn't have went that way and so i always remember that moment because i listened to that was the very first time i listened to myself and, um, yeah, and rely on others. So like, if you can find a community of, um, you know, people of color or, you know, that you can relate to in your area, it's very like beneficial to find your community and have an outlet to talk about issues with and process through to get you, you know, through the hard times or, you know, talk, talk about anything that be helpful.
1: Yeah. Um I've got another kind of related question and I don't remember if it was Shaquinta or um someone else who mentioned it. But someone told me that as as a person of color who studies like their own population or their own demographic, there's a lot of there's some like stigma or a lot of questioning from people outside that racial group in terms of like, is this research bias or should you really be the one to do this? Which I thought was really, really strange. But have you ever had any kind of like interaction about being a black woman and also studying a black population?
0: Um, No, I've had moments where like this was an undergrad that really like stuck out to me where I thought just because I was a black woman that, and I was working with black moms that I would just, they would just open up and tell me everything. Mm -hmm. And they didn't because I was associated with the university and they're like, Oh, like we didn't connect in that way. I also wasn't a mom. Mm -hmm. And so it just, that experience really just, you know, taught me to check my own biases and think about, you know, intersectionality and things like that. But I've never had, I've never, um, had any other experience cool. with that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I don't remember who
1: told it to me, but it was, it was something about the effective. And I think it was like a attitude from like decades ago of like, if you're studying your own people group, maybe you don't have like the right lack of a bias. I don't remember mm. who said that, but yeah. I thought it was the strangest thing.
0: Yeah. Whenever I do research, I tell everybody this, but even, you know, my own self and people of color, working with people of color to just have a check in with yourself. I think that's just like good research ethics is to check in with yourself and check the biases and um, kind of ground yourself before you work with other people to, you know, make sure that you're approaching it in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. Um, But. Yeah. It's awesome. I don't
1: know. Well, Megan, um, it has been great to catch up with you. Uh, I love to hear about what you're up to. I see updates sometimes on Instagram. <laughs> you DM every now and then. Um,
0: yeah.
1: Any, I love any, your
0: page. <laughs>
1: oh, thank you. I. It'll soon become mostly podcast stuff, uh, okay. to be honest. But um, do you have any... Parting thoughts or any, any takeaways that you would want current grad students to have in terms of like envisioning their future career or starting their own business or getting to where they want to be professionally?
0: Um, just tap into your networks, learn as much as you can, keep your options open and be open to the world. Like, don't feel like, you know, you're stuck. And don't feel like you're not a prize, especially people of color in these different areas. Like, um, I feel like I'm a prize and people, you know, like I, if I leave, I feel like I'm a prize because if I leave, it's like detrimental yeah. <laughs> to the process. And so you just remember that have people remember that too. I yes. don't know.
1: That's <laughs> awesome. I, uh, before we go, I had a funny story that I wanted to to throw out
0: okay. uh, I, I don't know if
1: you'll remember this, but I think we were in stats. Uh, maybe it was stats one or stats two. I don't remember exactly, but, and I think it was early in the semester when the class had started. And someone pointed out that I had a white hair patch. Like, I think it's right here. I don't know if it'll show up on camera. <laughs> Just like a very small patch of white hair. And they were asking me like, how I got it, which is, like, the weirdest question. Right. And I responded, and I said, uh, it turned white after I came down from Mount Sinai. And you were the only one that laughed. (laughs) Which, you know, to folks who are not, didn't grow up in church, that's a reference to Moses, and he came down with the Ten Commandments, and it was all white or something. It was the corniest corniest ass joke. I
0: love jokes like that. My humor is like that.
1: Yeah. As soon as I heard you laughing I was like we we are going to be friends.
0: <laughs> I feel like that happened multiple times like you would make comments or in presentations and like I would be smiling cuz I think you're trying to be humorous right. and like no one is getting it and I'm like y'all he is not being serious right now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the subtle humor escapes too many people, especially academics.
0: My favorite memories from stats. just to add some, like, I remember, I forget one class with Wix and no one knew what was going on. And he's just like, all right, moving on. And everyone's just like looking at themselves like, all right. Yes. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. I remember he'd be at the board <laughs> with uh, a beat of knots. Right. And, like, all of his other catchphrases. <laughs> And we'd, I'd be looking around <laughs> to see who was actually, like, tracking and who, who else was like, I don't know what's going on.
0: And he'd turn around. He's like, good, good. And he'd right. like, just keep going. And we're just like, okay. Yeah. We'll figure it out.
1: It was so funny. <laughs> yeah. I, I honestly thought that maybe stats would not be my strong suit in that class. Because I could, I could never write. Unequ- I, can't, I don't even know what, like, a regression equation looks like now. could never tell you and he was doing like all the complicated stuff
0: yeah it clicked i tell people like it clicked the next class like the first class always clicked in the second class and so that makes sense like backwards so it's weird how my brain worked in that way but it took time i guess i don't know very fun but yeah
1: all right so if uh if uh, listeners want to connect with you in some way, whether it's about your work at Wayne State mm-hmm. or your consulting business, how would you recommend they get in contact with you?
0: Um, well, I have a very, you know, hicksdataconsulting.com. There's like a contact there, like a contact sheet. And then the email is just info at um, Hicks Data Consulting is also on Instagram. And um, if you want my Wayne State stuff, you can Google, you know, Wayne State School of Social Work, Megan Hicks um, or my email. It's like a generic like email, but G M five zero one nine at Wayne dot (laughs) edu. But
1: I was looking at that on your TV and I was like, (laughs) damn, is that her real email?
0: Yes. (laughs) I tried to order a textbook recently and they're like, you're a robot. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Give me my book. (laughs) That's
1: so funny. All right, Megan. Well, I I love chatting with you. I'm glad we've stayed in contact. And uh, thank you for coming on the show today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I would love to have you back in the future. All right. Well, I'll talk to you next time. Okay. Bye. folks thank you for listening to the grad school sucks podcast where we believe that your life and career after grad school should rock i loved getting to catch up with megan and hearing about how her career in academia is going as well as learning a little bit more about her data business i hope you gleaned a lot of wisdom and inspiration from her story today If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe, leave a comment, and write a review. If you know someone who could benefit from listening to this podcast, consider sending them today's episode and let them know why they should check it out. And hey, if you're just hearing this episode and not seeing it, I recommend you check us out on YouTube where we post video versions of all of our podcasts. As always, I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. Stay classy, grad students. Megan, what is your spirit animal?
0: Probably like a sloth or something. Or what sleeps a lot? Whatever sleeps a lot.
1: Whatever sleeps a lot.
0: A bear in hibernation.
1: I feel that barren Winter. <laughs> um Okay. What is your superpower?
0: Um, I like to think of it as like relating to being relatable, I guess. People really like flock to me and connect with me really easily because I think I'm really relatable and people open up.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, last one. If you could retire anywhere in the world where would you retire?
0: Probably somewhere I haven't found yet. That's like extremely remote and like not even able to be found easily. I liked Belize from somewhere I've visited already. It was Belize because it seemed that way, like less touched.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Very (laughs) cool.